Okay, I had to completely shut off all my emotions between OCC and worship. I was about to step up here as a crying, blubbering goober. And I thought, stop, just think about elephants jumping over the moon or something, you know? Oh my goodness. And I just got to show this. I stared at this box the whole, how many of y'all saw this box? Is this not the greatest OCC box ever? Man, like they were like with passion and by gosh, my child's going to get some stuff in their box, you know? That's beautiful. Jenna Patton did that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, that was, that's so fun. Obviously, we'll have to put a lot of duct tape around that one. Duct, duct tape will fix it. Oh, you know what? They are trying to hem me in this morning. Last thing I need is to knock over something in preaching, right? Okay, good morning, everybody. What a fun morning so far. Uh, let us continue in the Word. Turn with me to Hebrews 4, 11 through 16 this morning. Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. So here's a quote that I came across recently. It goes like this. We are saved by faith alone, by believing in Christ as our Savior and trusting in His work on the cross to save us. But the kind of faith that saves is faith that reorients your whole life. And in some ways, this quote represents where the writer of Hebrews has been taking us for the first three and a half chapters. And this morning, he brings us to the end of chapter four, a conclusion, if you would, by zooming in, zooming in on us this exact point. Because our problem in Christianity is not the Christ saves part. It is the problem that reorients your whole life part. Honestly, to you and I, if, we're, if we are honest, it can feel a tad offensive for someone to say that we have so much need that we need to be reoriented, or another word, overhauled, or maybe rehabilitated. There's something in us that says, sure, I know I'm not perfect. Sure, I know I need to make some adjustments. But overhauled? Come on, man. Now, we wouldn't say that publicly. But I think we all think it and feel it. Last week... Monty spoke of striving after the wind. I would give a synonymous term to that is when we don't reorient our whole lives to Jesus, when he doesn't reorient our whole lives to him, put it that way, then Jesus just becomes an add-on. And an add-on is simply striving after the wind, emptiness, futility, vapor. Last week, Monty summed up the writer of Hebrews' words with, good news doesn't benefit those who dismiss it. I want to add to the great theologian Monty Waldron's quote with this, good news doesn't benefit those who don't wallow in it. Good news doesn't benefit those who don't immerse themselves in it, who don't chase hard after it. 
our writer in Hebrews 4, 11 through 16, our text this morning, lays out for us the path to godliness, the path to spiritual maturity, to making Christ supreme in your life, to reorienting Christ, your life to Christ. As Jeremiah said, and Monty quoted last week, look for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And in doing so, you will find rest for your souls. Growing in godliness is the rest we need. And to get it, we must trust and obey. And that is the path that our text speaks of this morning. One of our values, matter of fact, at Fellowship Bible Church is a long obedience in the same direction. Our text speaks to that this morning. Let me read verses 11 through 13. We'll read them in parts. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So our first big point is, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, over the last few weeks, we have learned what biblical rest means practically for us. It is salvation on one sense, or heaven, our ultimate rest, our ultimate promised land. Or, as a Christian in the here and now, it is rest for our souls. It is hope in the here and now. As Jesus put it, come to me all who labor, all who labor of those who are striving after the wind about things that don't matter and, and are heavy laden with what? The cares and concerns of this world. <laughs> That's got to be all of us. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, which is discipleship or growth in godliness. And you will, promise, find rest for your souls. So as we look at verse 11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So verse 11 is an urgent plea for us to be diligent, to be careful, so we don't throw away God's offer of, offer of rest, which is salvation, and if saved, growth and godliness. And then verse 11, and if we're not, let me put it this way, if we're not diligent to enter God's rest, it says we are following an example of disobedience. So just doing basic Bible study, we ask the question, whose example of disobedience? So we go back, take your finger and go back to Hebrews 3.19. It tells us, so we see that they, the Israelites, were not able to enter the rest because of what? Unbelief. So in Hebrews 4.11, the disobedience that he speaks of is unbelief, or put another way, a failure to trust and obey. For the non-Christian, it's a failure to place their trust 
in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins alone, by faith alone. For the Christian, it is to keep us in a, we fail to trust and obey, and in doing so, it keeps us in a place of spiritual immaturity where Jesus is not supreme in your life, a place of Jesus being an add-on, a place of striving after things that don't matter first and foremost, and a place where your life is oriented toward you. So we got some clarity there. So then we ask the question of failure to trust in what? And this is what I want to do is connect verse 11 with verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, we have had good news preached to us just as they also had good news preached to them. But the word, I'm sorry, go back to verse 3. I was in chapter 3. Is it 312? I'm sorry, I got I got all messy. Okay, here's the verse. We had good news preached to us just as they also had good news preached to them. But the word, this is going back to 319, they heard did not profit or benefit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. So what they failed to do when they heard the word of God and saw the works of God, they failed to trust in it. So in light of that, the link between verse 11 and verse 12 is this. Verse 11, be diligent with the word of God to believe in it, to trust in it, to walk in it. And now verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced into the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So verse 12 and 13 is an argument, if you would, For why would she be so diligent to enter God's rest by trusting and obeying God's word? And here's why. God's word is still, in 2021, just as it was then, the primary way in which we renew, refresh, and reorient our entire lives. And without it, We will not enter God's rest. We will not become a Christian and enter heaven, and we will not grow in godliness without it. So notice there in verse 11, notice the word strive. Here's the literal word. It means zealous effort and growing in godliness. It is the opposite of shallow laziness that can plague all of us. And it was plaguing the Hebrew Christians. 5.11, it says they had become dull of hearing. In 6.12, it says they were sluggish spiritually. And look, when you and I hear those terms, we ought to nod our head. If we're not there now, there has been seasons, have there not, where we were dull of hearing and sluggish spiritually. But we're going to find the root of why today. And contrast that, though, with Hebrews 11.6, after the whole chapter of Hebrews is listing out those who were striving well, and then God says, God is a rewarder of those who seek him or strive after him. This is a, this is a up, down, down, up statement, but I want to make it. As a Christ follower, we actually enter the rest of God by seeking or striving hard after God. As a Christ follower, 
we actually enter the rest of God by striving hard after God. <laughs> Here's how Paul put it in 2 Timothy 4.7. Listen to his language. It's right before his death. He says, I have competed well. I have finished the what? Race. I have strived hard after God. I have worked so hard and so diligently to know and follow and trust and obey this God that I look forward, if you read the rest of the verse, to receiving the righteous crown that I will receive when I stand before him. Man, those are powerful words. Striving after God via his word takes action after action uh, on our part while striving after the wind, or another word is drifting, is the result of doing nothing in regards to God's word. So here's the reality. Every single day, me and you, and I've had lots of failures, more than you even want to know about. You may be looking at another church if you knew all the days where I strived after the wind. But every day, me or you, are striving after God or we're drifting away from God. There is no in-between. So we ask the question, how do we strive? What is it that we strive after? Verse 12 answers that. He says, you use the sword of the king himself. Verse 12. This is speaking of the word of God. It certainly exposes our weaknesses and our sins so that we can see our great need. And there's all kind of words in there, active and alive and two-edged. And all those have deep meanings if we unpack those words, but we don't have time. So I want to summarize, if we could, verse 12. God's word penetrates very deep. This is what verse 12 is saying. Like a sword or a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through the hard and deceptive and tough layers of our sinful hearts. And then via the Holy Spirit, it shows us what it has found. It penetrates to the bottom of our defenses and the lies we believe about God and about ourselves in relation to him and exposes what is true. It does something that is impossible for us to do on our own. And when it does, here's what happens. Our need needle drastically moves. A person who has a need needle that's over here in the low category has not been in the scriptures much or has read it with delusional eyes and dull hearts and, and cannot hear. A person whose need needle is way over here is not only reading the scriptures, but is reading it as it was intended to be read, which I'm going to talk about at the end. Today, the writer several times just says, when you hear the word of God, do not harden your heart because the voice of God is speaking. It is not a dead voice. It is not a dormant voice. Spurgeon put it this way. There's no need to defend the word of God like there's no need to defend the lion. You just let it loose and let it go to work. He also said, you may hunt a badger and run down a fox or chase a turkey, maybe is what he meant. 
but you cannot get at a man. He has so many two faces and hiding places, yet the word of God will dig him out, pounce on him, and seize him. John Piper puts it this way, the word of God is living and active and penetrates to the bottom of our lives and it rips the pleasant mask off our ugly face of sin. Because Jesus is not dead, his word is not dead. Because it is alive, it imparts life to us, or another way to put it, it imparts rest to our souls. Solomon says in Proverbs 6, speaking of God's word, when you go, it shall lead you. When you sleep, it shall keep you. And when you awake, it shall talk with you. This is what he means. He means it will wrestle with you. It will smite you. It will comfort you. It will smile on you. It will clasp you by the hand in your darkest moment and walk you out of the pit. It will warm your cold heart. It will weep with you and sing with you and whisper to you God's great love. It will preach to you. It will convict you. It will save you from despair. And it will fill your soul with great hope. God's word has done all that with me. And if we're in it with the right posture and long enough, it will do the same for you. And ultimately, it says, trust and obey the living God in this life. Because in the next life, you will have a face-to-face -face encounter with that living God. And you will, or he will, you will have to give an account for your life to him. That's what verse 13 says. And I've called it, this is the why we strive hard after God through his word. And the why is God's holy MRI. It tells us why we strive. It says there's a day of reckoning coming in light of how we have trusted and obeyed God in our wilderness journey. And look, we, uh, nobody wants to hear this. <laughs> God's word, it says, is like an MRI. It sees through us because we even lie to ourselves about who we are. <laughs> we can't detect our own self-righteousness nor our own motives. My football coach at East Carolina would come and say to me or a player, you didn't play very good. And immediately we'd say, what? But, but I did, but I did. He'd say, ah, Jeff, the eye in the sky don't lie. <laughs> That's God's word. It says we are laid bare. That's the word naked and exposed. Just as Adam and Eve were naked before God, so the scriptures strip all of our fig leaves away. Every secret, every lie, it says you may run, but you cannot hide from a God that sees it all. 
There will be a face-to-face encounter with the living God. And here's what that should do. Instead of making us run for cover or hide more, it should challenge us at the highest level to very carefully consider if we are striving after the wind or striving after God through his word. This sobering text should cause us to ask a crucial question. Who in the world can represent a 100% guilty sinner before a perfect and holy God that sees everything? Thank goodness that verse 14 and 15 answers that question. Look at verse 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the writer of Hebrews, if he's human, he has to know, as he just penned verse 13, That is not only sobering, but it is terrifying. He knows that his readers there and future readers will be flipping out. And so here in verse 14 and 15, he says, hold on. Before you have a stroke, (laughs) let me comfort you by reminding you that Jesus is better. Matter of fact, he is Not a great high priest. He is the great high priest. Now when the writer or the audience that the Hebrews writer was writing to, when they heard that word high priest, it brought clarity and comfort to them. But to us, it sort of does nothing. Okay, Uh, whatever. So, I want us to understand that the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was not dreamed up by men in order for men to reach God, but it was a gift from God. So God's people would totally understand what is required from men to understand his gorgeous, beautiful, redemptive salvation and to appoint people ultimately to the final and great high priest the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Alistair Begg, I thought, simplified it here. When speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system, he said, one, it was to let everyone know that forgiveness is costly. Two, that there is punishment for the punishment for sin is death. Three, he says, it is to make clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And four, he says, there's a human mediator, that's the high priest, between God and the people who has to first offer up a sacrifice for his own sins, because he is a sinner, before he can offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. But the writer of Hebrews Referring back to those truths about the Old Testament sacrificial system is now writing to this audience say, that's all null and void, but it had a purpose. It was pointing to you ultimately to the one that I've been speaking of for four chapters, the Lord Jesus himself, who is the great 
high priest, a high priest that is greater than Aaron. He is a mediator between God and man who is not offering up the blood of goats and cows, but his own blood for the forgiveness of those who would trust him because a bloodless gospel is a lifeless gospel and our gospel is alive. He is not only better than Aaron, but he is better than any man ever. And therefore there is no need for a pope or a priest or any man. Matter of fact, it is impossible for anyone but the Lord Jesus to be a mediator and make intercession for his people than Jesus Christ alone. And in that intercession, what does he say to the Father? He says, they are mine. Yes, they are a mess, Lord, but they're mine. They're bought with my blood. So how does he do that? Our text tells us, verse 14. He does it because Jesus is enthroned at the Father's right hand. Our text says he has passed through the heavenlies. And I just want to ask you, is there any more influential place for the one whose job is to represent men before God than sitting at the right hand of the Father? Like, he is exactly where he goes, they're mine. Hebrews 1.3 says, the son who sustains all things by the powerful word is he who sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. And the reality is he can't accuse us because he's the very one that pardoned us. <laughs> and maybe the most powerful image in my mind, when my sins rise up to the Father, it is Jesus that is saying over and over, they're paid for. I got him. 24-7, he's pleading my case before the Father, forgiven I'm working on him. I will bring to completion what I started in him. Philippians 1, 6. Robert Murray McShay, McShay said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Not only does he do it because of where he sits, but he does it because, says in your notes, Jesus understands we are weak, yet he has not sinned. So the incarnation of Jesus, of God becoming man, what happened there practically, it gave him great empathy with his people, with all of us who are weak. He can be empathetic. He can be understanding. He can be sympathetic. Not because he wrestled with sin and loss, but because he wrestled with sin and won. Because he experienced great temptation and yet never, ever sinned. He knows what it takes to fight sin. Spurgeon put it this way, Jesus is our high priest, is the friend and benefactor of the most wretched men on earth. 
Our great high priest was no outsider to the struggle of sin. But your text says, but is just as we are in his own struggle with sin, yet he never sinned. Through all of his temptations to sin, he trusted and obeyed, that's the message, the Father perfectly. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. If you wanted to learn how to do something in gymnastics or to teach your child in gymnastics, you can answer aloud. Would you ask Jeff, me, or would you ask Monty? Huh? I'm a little disappointed. (laughs) But I understand. If you wanted to learn how to tackle someone or to kill a turkey, would you ask... Would you... That's a sure sign that Brett is a not a Christian <laughs> or is not walking well at all. So. Who would you ask, me or Monty? Come on. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Yes, God bless you. I want to continue on, but time in the text makes me here. Look. Verse 16 tells us who to ask. Verse 16 tells us where we go to wrestle with and be victorious over sin and where to go when we wrestle with and fail in our sin. Verse 16 tells us where we learn to trust and obey. Verse 16 tells us where we get progressively, we grow progressively in godliness. And Chad said it this morning, but I'm going to read it for us again, and then I want to unpack it for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near or literally approach God through his word, prayer, and worship. And it's saying that we are confident he hears us, he meets with us, and he responds with the grace and strength that we need. Listen to how Titus 2, 11 through 14 describes the power of the grace of God in the life of the believer to reorient their whole life. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and now what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live so self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawliness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is what he wants to give us. Now, I don't know about you. I think we are reluctant, naturally, to ask for help because of our own pride or because we feel that God will rub our noses or shame us in our weaknesses and failures. But the text says that we are assured, promised, we will receive all the help and grace and mercy that we need to reorient 
recalibrate our whole lives toward him, to change from the inside out. So I want to take a few minutes, and I want to make the last few minutes very practical for us. I want to give us this path, if you would. It, it's not some robotic path. It's not, if you're an engineer, you're going to struggle with what I'm going to say because I'm not an engineer. But, but I want to give you a path. There's things you can add, things you can take away. But I want to give a big picture of a path of what it looks like to draw near to the Lord Jesus and receive the help and grace and mercy that we need with confidence. I want to start with this. You and I need to know that it is our responsibility to create opportunities for God to feed us. King David said, ask the question, where can I meet with God? And in doing so, you and I are looking for this special time which takes planning ahead of time on your calendar to be alone with God. And I want you to know that Satan is afraid of and hates a believer to be, have solitude to meet with God. We are trying to cultivate in this, not solitude, but we're trying to cultivate something that our culture is not cultivating because no one drifts into godliness. It will take effort plus time. That is the striving. So that's number one. Number two, you have to decide ahead your Bible reading plan. This The poor man will be rich today. Okay. Decide ahead your Bible reading plan. And now open your Bible. And remember, this is not a verse a day keeps the devil away approach. It is not spiritual jeopardy to know Bible stuff. It is not the hallmark approach to get inspiration or the microwave approach where we are looking at what's in it for me now. It is a time where you and I are submitting ourselves under the authority of God and his word. And in prayer, we are asking God to speak to us because the Bible is revelation from God about God with a deep sense of humility. Thirdly, we are to read slowly. Thinking, pondering, while taking to heart the words that you are reading. One writer said, to be intense in your mind with an attitude of need. Asking God screw his, to screw his truth into your mind and use his word to work Christ into our affections. We are asking God that your very words would affect us deeply. And in doing so, we are reading, and this may be the most important thing I say about this path. We are reading with an intention to obey, not to get our checklist, because I know from personal experience, obedience breeds understanding. Hmm. Hebrews 4, 
15 says, because solid food is for the mature. Number four, it's a time of self-examination. The MRI of his word is on. So we pray Psalm 139 to search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. And here's what I want to tell you about self-examination from personal experience. It is incredibly painful, but it is incredibly joyful and liberating. When you go to the doctor, he's done an MRI, and he comes to you and tells you that you have cancer. It is incredibly painful and scary. But at the same time, he is, you have been wandering. You've been, you don't know, and now he's saying to you, but this is the kind of cancer you have, and this is how we're going to attack it and heal it. It's liberating. That is the word of God summarized in just a few sentences to us. Self-examination is testing to see if we are in the faith. And if we are in the faith to see if we are growing or declining or drifting in godliness. And fifthly, again, not comprehensively, there's the time of confession, petition, asking, and praying, and praise. So here's a reality check for all of us, myself included. Your consistency of walking that path that I just described is a declaration of what you think about your need for the Lord Jesus and your need to reorient your whole life to him. If you're doing it consistently and there's work to be done in terms of the posture I just described, but you're chasing hard, you are seeing reality. (laughs) If you're not, you are fooling yourself and you will stay in a state of immaturity spiritually. I don't know how else plain I can have it. And I want to tell you, I am not your model. I am so encouraged about where I have come. But I can tell you, it is God's word that sanctifies your pastor just as it is God's word that sanctifies you. (laughs) And you wouldn't have hired me 17 years ago. I wouldn't have hired me 17 years ago. And here's the great point, 17 years from now, I wouldn't wouldn't hire me now. It never stops. Don't settle. Let me end with this for our so what. I must say this distinction. I'm afraid we live in such a culture where morality is lifted up as holiness and holiness is confused with morality or godliness. I want to say a couple of things concerning that that I want you to consider in your so what. Morality is concerned with external appearances. It's not godliness. It is concerned with what people think of us. It is filled with pride because you are doing it right. It's protective. It's defensive, and it's easily offended. 
It compares itself to other, and it makes statements like, how could someone do that? If you're saying that, there are red alarm flags going off everywhere. Godliness, on the other hand, is fueled by brokenness, which is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and my life as he alone can see it. We'll never meet God in revival or rest until we have first met him in brokenness. You see, a broken person doesn't care who knows. Brokenness lives with the roof off connecting upward with God and with the walls down connecting with others. Here's how James put it, the half-brother of Jesus. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We love that verse. But there's a process first that the next few lines talk about that must happen before that happens. And here's what it says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. That's what's got to happen first. That's the MRI. Then says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And then he'll lift you up and he'll give you the rest for your souls. Take a few minutes this morning and ask the question, so what? Thank you.